Well, good morning. I invite you to open your copy of the scriptures to the book of John, chapter 15. John, chapter 15. And for the sake of context, I'm actually going to begin reading at verse 1, and we'll read all the way down through verse 17. John, chapter 15, beginning at verse 1, we read these words. Jesus is speaking. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide. These things and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants. For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you, that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain. That whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us alone. You've given to us the words which give to us life. And we praise you and thank you that you have given to us clear instructions that we are not just told to follow, but we are commanded by our Lord to follow. And it is our joy, it is our privilege to hear those words and to embrace them today. I pray that in your grace, you would open all of our minds and our hearts to receive these words and to do so with joy and with love. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure all of us at some point in life have had 
a best friend. Um, you probably, even as a kid, referred to some of your best friends as your BFF, your best friend forever. And those friends are precious. Those friends are gifts from God. And true friends are the ones who will last a lifetime. They don't wither away. They don't go away. They will be your friend forever. I know for me, I was a bit of a, a, an awkward teen. At least it's my own assessment. Maybe other people wouldn't have said that, but I felt like I was a bit of an awkward teen, and I felt as though sometimes my, my, my brothers and my other uh, teens or, or friends in my youth group, they, they seemed to have really close friends, and I, I mean, I had friends, but they didn't seem close. And part of that was, as I was thinking and praying and asking God, why don't I have a close friend like that? I think part of that was because I wasn't showing myself friendly, like the verse in Proverbs says. So one Sunday morning, after morning service, I must have been 12, 13 maybe, I prayed and asked the Lord, I want to have a a close friend, a good friend. And so if there's somebody who comes to our church in the next few weeks with somebody my age, I'm going to get out of my comfort zone. Because the Lord knew, and I know, that I actually am very shy and don't necessarily like to get out of my comfort zone to go talk to somebody new that I don't know. Well, the funny thing is the Lord has a really interesting way of answering prayer because that evening there was a new family that visited our church and lo and behold, they had two boys, one of them the same age as me and his name was Trent. And I thought, oh boy, now I've got to actually go and meet this, this new kid. So I went up to him and met him And Trent became, as I grew up in my teen years, my closest friend, the one I felt like I could hang out with and do everything with. And he ended up being one of my uh, groomsmen in my wedding, just one of my my very dear friends. You have a special friendship like that, and it's, it's very meaningful. But there's something different about that friend and other people around you. There's people around you that you would be willing to sacrifice things for, right? You'd be willing to give of your resources, whether it be time, whether it be your money, things like that. But then there's some people that you are willing to sacrifice above and beyond what you might for somebody else. Jesus capitalizes on that same principle when he's illustrating something for his disciples. And he wants his disciples to know something. And it's very simple. You need to love each other. And I have to back up and ask why. Why do the disciples, why are they called to love each other? Why is Jesus taking 12 men from all different walks of life? Some of them are brothers, so they have that going for them. But for the most part, they all have got different walks of life, different personalities, different perspectives, different biases. Why are they told to love each other? And I think one of the simple and obvious answers is that it's not natural for us to do that. In our sinful estate, it's not natural for us to love somebody who is not exactly like me. Somehow, we think that if there were carbon copies of ourselves, maybe it'd be easier to love each other, but I'm quickly finding out that's, no, that's not the way it works. If there were a bunch of Rodneys in the world, I would really be irritated a lot. But we don't have a lot of carbon copies of ourselves. There are a lot of differences within us, whether it comes to personalities, whether it comes to life backgrounds, whether it comes to perspectives, there are differences. And the challenge is, how do you get along with those people? Because it's not always easy. I mean, you just think about your own family. 
You have brothers or sisters, and growing up, I'm sure you never fought, right? You never had any disagreements. It wasn't the case for me and my siblings anyways, probably because of me. We fought, but we learned to get along, and we love each other. It's no different in the family of God. We are made up of many different peoples, literally different ethnicities. There are people in our congregation right now who speak different languages than others. And we are called by our Lord to love those people, to love one another. But I do want you to notice that particularly in this paragraph we're going to look at, which is verses 12 through 17, the command that Jesus is giving isn't just love everybody, although surely that would be summarizing the whole intent of the law. Love God, love others. This is a narrow focus. Jesus in this paragraph is not telling his disciples to love everybody. In this particular paragraph, he's saying love each other. Love each other. So I believe what we're about to see today in this text is that we are called by Jesus to actively love one another as Christians and thereby demonstrate the same kind of sacrificial love which we were shown by him. I think that's what we're supposed to get across today, that we must actively, actively love one another as Christians and in doing so, demonstrate the same kind of sacrificial love that we were shown by Jesus himself. But why should we do that? That's the question that Jesus answers. And I believe he gives us four very compelling reasons for us to love one another. And so let's walk through these very quickly. Reason number one is simply because our Lord commands it. There's a story that R.C. Sproul tells that I just always get a kick out of. He was in a seminary class, and one of his professors and mentors by the name of John Gerstner had all the class sitting kind of in a semicircle, and they were all sitting there. And uh, they were talking particularly about the, the thorny question of, of the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And uh, Dr. Gerstner liked to, in this particular class, have a setting where he would discuss questions. So he sat his students down, and he said, all right, if God is sovereign... That is to say that God has ordained in his good providence and in his good pleasure and good will those whom he would save, then why on earth should we have any need to share the gospel with anybody? Because whoever's going to get saved is going to get saved. At least that's what people like to characterize that view as. But he was actually asking a very pointed question. If God is the one responsible for bringing about the fruit of salvation, then how on earth is it possible that he would tell us to go make disciples, to evangelize. So R.C. Sproul notes that he was sitting way on one end, and to his joy, Dr. Gerstner started on the opposite end, started asking the students, how would you answer that question? And the first one everyone's looking to, because of course all the pressure's on him, says, Dr. Gerstner, I, I don't know. I don't know why I should necessarily be... be sharing and evangelizing if, if God is the one who's sovereign? I guess that's a really, that's a tough question. Dr. Gerstner kind of just was like, okay, how about you? Same answer, one by one, goes through and asks each one 
Why should we evangelize if God is the one in charge of who will be saved? And one by one, they're all going through and saying, I, I, I actually don't know. It's a tough question. It's one of those questions. It's one of those mysteries we don't understand. But that wasn't what he was looking for. And finally, he gets to R.C. Sproul. And R.C. is sweating bullets at this point. And Gattagurser says, all right, Sproul, how would you answer this question? And he's he kind of very sheepishly, almost in, in, a, in a shameful way, said, well, yeah. Dr. Gerson, I'm not, I really am sure there's a deeper answer you're looking for. I don't know if this is exactly it, but I, I guess, I mean, it's just, well, I mean, Jesus is God, and Jesus told us to do it. So, I mean, I, I suppose, even if we don't understand all of the ins and outs of it, I suppose that we should just, we should probably do it. To which Dr. Gerstner laughed him and began to say, oh, yes. I mean, it's only the sovereign of the universe, the one who spoke everything into existence, the one who has given us all these good gifts in life, the one who has blessed us with everything. I mean, the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. Yeah, I suppose if he says we should do it, I suppose we should probably do it. And his point was well made, that it's not ridiculous to look at the authority of Jesus, and when Jesus tells us to do something, to say, I may not always understand why, but I'm going to do it. Jesus in verse 12 says, this is my commandment. All throughout Jewish tradition, the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees were all saying, this is the Lord's commandment. Thus says the Lord, proclaim the prophets. But here comes Jesus. And he says, this is my commandment. He's not speaking on a delegated authority. Like I'm speaking here, simply sharing with you the words of God, but I don't have in and of myself a divine authority whatsoever. I am just like you, a sinner redeemed by the blood of Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders were not given divine authority. They were not God. So every time they opened the Old Testament or the Torah, and every time they read from it, they could only say, thus says the Lord, not thus says Rodney King. But here comes this rabbi who breaks the mold and says, this is my commandment. And what was the command that he gave? That you love one another. Jesus gave and spoke this commandment with authority. If we dare to defy that authority, we are defying the living God. Love Christians because Jesus has commanded it. That in and of itself should be enough of a point for us. But Jesus doesn't stop there. So he gives us a second reason to love one another. And that is because he himself demonstrates it. Not only does he have the authority to command it, but he provided the example and demonstrated what loving others looks like. Notice what he says there in verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Jesus does not simply stop with the command that you should love one another and that's it. There is a measurement by which you are to value the level of that love. 
to what degree are we called to love one another? In the way that Jesus loved us. That's his answer. Sometimes we talk about love in terms of that, that you know, very fuzzy feeling on the inside. Two people who are in love with each other, they think that they can do, the other person can do no wrong, and the emotions all expressed within that love, you have this affection for somebody. A lot of times we talk in terms of love being that, that ex- emotion, that expression, but Jesus here says, love acts. Love does something. It doesn't simply feel. Of course, there may be affections you feel for one another within the congregation, but that's not Jesus' point this time. Jesus' point is your love will manifest itself in action. And he said, I provided you that example. And what kind of example did he himself provide? He provided us an example of a sacrificial love. And he says that much in verse 13. Greater love has no man than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. I was listening to a, if you ever follow Desiring God, it's a blog that John Piper's ministry does. He has what he calls the look at the book, and he'll literally just have like his, his iPad or tablet there, and he just kind of marks up the text and points out things that are inside of it. And I happen to be watching the one that he was doing on this, and he said it was interesting to him that he came to this text almost with a preconceived expectation. In verse 13, when you read, greater love has no man than this, than that a man lay down his life for his, what do you expect the next word to be? Well, because we know the verse, we know it's friends, but really... What had Jesus been teaching on the Sermon on the Mount? Love your enemies. So some might have expected Jesus to say, the highest expression of love is that you give down your life for your enemies. Because what greater expression of love could there be? I mean, that's exactly what Jesus himself did, is it not? Romans chapter 5. says, for while we were yet sinners, in due time, Christ died for his friends. Christ died for the righteous. Christ died for the ungodly. In due time, in the right time, while we were yet sinners, enemies, alienated in our minds from God, separated from God, in due time, Christ died for his enemies. For the ungodly. So we would almost expect Jesus to say, What greater expression of love could there be? Jesus himself did it. But listen very carefully. Jesus here is not talking about love for your enemies in this. He's talking about love for your friends, and he's talking about the extent of that love. His emphasis, particularly, is not on the friends, the word friends there, but on the two words, lay down. Greater love has no man to this than one lays down what? The most valuable thing you possess that you can never get back. Your life. Where you sacrifice everything. We've all heard stories of families who woke up and there was, their house was burning in the middle of the night and so they're rushing out trying to get all their family members out and all of a sudden 
the mom or the dad realizes one of the kids still in the house, and so they rush back into the burning house to save the child. They were willing to give up their life. That is the extent of their love. Jesus did just that. He gave up his life, demonstrating the greatest expression of love possible. Let me ask you, is that your expression of love for your brothers and sisters in Christ here at Calvary Baptist Church in Findlay, Ohio? Is that your greatest expression of love in your own family that you would be willing to do? Paul understood this very question and how fickle we can be because it can be really easy in the moment to say, well, of course I'd give my life for my family. Of course I'd give my life for the rest of of our believers here. But Paul understands we can say things, we can talk big, but what actually is happening behind those two ears? Verse 7 of Romans 5, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good, good man, some would even dare to die. Paul says, there's no possible way that with unreserved Every single time would you give down your life for somebody. He constantly is using the words, maybe you might do it. And even then, it's only going to be somebody who is worth it, valuable to you. But God demonstrated a love that was sacrificial to the point of dying for his enemies. Jesus says, your love should mirror mine. Your love should be sacrificial. And in 1 John, I appreciate Mr. Lee reading our scripture reading this morning. In 1 John, just a couple chapters previous to what he read, chapter 3, the same apostle who wrote the Gospel of John writes 1 John and says in verse 16 of 1 John 3, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. John is writing this letter and is expressing the very teaching that Jesus had taught him. That's what he's doing. This is how we know love. Because we have experienced by Christ who gave his life for us. And it is the basis of his sacrificial love that we should be willing to do the same. To love in a way that is sacrificial. Now I would dare say most of us in this room, if not all of us, will probably not have to give of our life, literally, to somebody. But the point that Jesus is giving is that he demonstrated a sacrificial love, a love that gave up the supreme thing he possessed. He gave up his life. And no greater love could be expressed. What level of love are you willing to express to your family? What level of love are you willing to express to your children? To model to them the same love you've experienced by Jesus. And to what degree are you willing to express your love in our congregation? Are you willing to go to the extreme of sacrificial, supreme love like Jesus gave? Jesus gave no caveats. That's what we're excellent at doing. 
Well, I'll give of my life and my time and my resources if. But that's not what Jesus said. What if Jesus had done that? We weren't his friends. If anybody had any reason not to give up the supreme sacrificial love, it was him. I see those peons. I created them. I made them to have a relationship with me, and they ruined it. I have every right to squish them, destroy the planet, destroy the cosmos, start over. He could have done that. He could have done that. He had the right to do that. But instead, in Genesis 3, verse 15, he gives to us his expression of love that there would be a seed, a descendant of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. He did not give up on us. Even when we were his enemies, he reached out and gave in love. In love. How dare we say that my love comes with a caveat. It should not be so. Jesus did not. Ours shouldn't either. So our Lord demonstrated a sacrificial, supreme love. But number three, a third reason to love one another is not only because of his authority, he commands it, not only because of his example, he demonstrates it, but also because of the relationship that we have with him. And our Lord expects it. Notice what he says in verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. That, that hymn that we sing sometimes, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. We are Jesus' friends if we have embraced Christ. In fact, Jesus says in verse 15 that your relationship has changed. No longer do I call you servants. That word servant literally is the word slave. No longer do I call you slaves. Imagine if you were the owner of this place and you had all of these these employees or in that ancient culture, if you had all of these indentured servants that we would use the word slave, you have all of them. Is it your prerogative to withhold your plans from them? Of course it is. Of course it is. And it wouldn't have been expected from the slaves that the, the owner, the master, their boss, their employer, it wouldn't have been expected from them that he would share with them any of his plans. But Jesus tells his disciples, I am not calling you slaves. That is not the relationship. You're not simply these mindless, blind followers of me. The slave doesn't know what his master is doing. His job isn't to know and analyze what the master is doing. His job is to obey. But Jesus says, you're not my slaves. I have called you friends. Because all the things that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your savior, then you are God's friend. And you have with that all of the rights and privileges of a close friend like you would have in your life now. Your close friend you could share anything with. Anything. Your hopes, your fears, your dreams. You can share any of that. With Jesus, you have a friend and he shares with you his plans for eternity. And he shares with you 
his joys. And he shares with you the privilege of his presence. The former relationship is that you were slaves, but now your current relationship in Christ is that you are his friend. And guess what? So is the other Christian sitting in the pew next to you. If Jesus calls them his friend, if Jesus calls you his friend, then Jesus expects that we should share the same love for one another that he has shown to us. The relationship has changed. Where once you were of your own family, your own direction in life, your own background, now when you come through the doors and meet together in the assembly of saints, you have something in common. You have other people who have been made friends by Jesus. And if they're Jesus' friend and you're Jesus' friend, you are friends. The relationship has changed, which means our Lord not only commands it, our Lord hasn't just demonstrated it, our Lord expects it. Love for one another is not optional. He expects it. If you are Jesus' friend, then you have a friend in your fellow Christians. And our love for one another should just abound yet more and more because of that. The final reason that I'll give that I see here in our text is because our Lord enables it. How can I love somebody when they have a different lifestyle, a different perspective, a different, um, different family life? How can I love somebody in that way? And the answer is our Lord enables it. And I use the word sovereignty here on purpose because in verse 16, Jesus tells his disciples, you did not choose me. I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. He had just been talking in the previous verses about himself being a vine and the father is the husbandman, it says in the King James. You might have a translation that says vine dresser. That the Lord himself is the vine dresser and God is looking at those who are connected to the vine and who are yielding fruit because of the vine. It's not that those vines or those branches on the vine chose to pop out. And it's not like the disciples were looking to follow Jesus. Think of all of the ways that they were called. Some of them were just happened to be in their boat, throwing their nets in the water. Some of them were with their father, mending their nets. One of them was sitting at the tax collector booth, the most hated place by the Jewish people. And Jesus, one by one, is going to them and saying, hey, you, follow me. I'll make you to become fishers of men. You, sitting at the tax collector booth, follow me. You, you were sitting under a tree. I saw you. Come follow me. They weren't looking for him. Jesus says, I chose you. Which I believe could not be a greater expression of love. They weren't looking for him. In fact, in some ways, they probably would have been just like everybody else. All the other people who saw the miracles of Jesus, they saw a circus show. They saw a clown. Feed us again, clown boy. But Jesus says, you 12, come with me. I want you to be my friends. 
and I'm going to show you not only the wonderful things that I'm showing all these people, but they don't understand, but I'm going to show you why I'm doing it. And not only that, but I'm going to make sure that you will do the things that I have called you to do. I'm going to make sure that not only after I have taught you for these three years and after I have gone through the torment of Calvary, after I have raised victorious from the dead and after I have ascended back up to the right hand to the Father, I'm going to make sure that you will bear much fruit. And notice that he says that your fruit would abide, that your fruit would remain. I don't want your life to be a waste. I want everything you do to last. But it's only going to happen if I enable it in you. We, by nature, apart from Jesus, don't want God. And Jesus saw that. I have heard so many people. I've read blog articles by atheists or even people who used to be Christians but then have walked away from the faith, all saying, if I saw God do X, Y, or Z, then I believe. If I saw handwriting in the sky, then I believe. If God manifested some great miraculous work, then I believe. But they won't. The people in Jesus' day didn't. It is only if God opens the eyes of the blind, or in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 or 4, that he calls the light to shine out of the darkness. It's only then that we will truly be able to bear the fruit Jesus wants us to bear. When God, existing in eternity past, said, let there be light, and commanded the light to shine, the light did not resist. It obeyed. And it only shone, not because it could do it of its own power, but because God enabled it. Why would we expect our love for one another to be any less fueled except by the power of God? It will not be natural for us to love one another apart from the enabling work of God. God has to give within us the ability, the desire, the want to do it. So we have been chosen by God to bear lasting fruit, and then I'll just I'll leave you with this. We are chosen to appeal to his throne, for in verse 16 he says, not only so that our fruit would remain, but also that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. As Jesus' friends, we have not only the ability by his power to love one another. But we also have the privilege of going before the throne of grace. The author of Hebrews describes it as we may come boldly before the throne of grace. That's the privilege of friends. That's the privilege of those who love God and love one another. So he finishes in verse 17, again, with a repetition of what he said. This I command you that you love one another. We are called to love one another as believers. The world sees it. The world wonders at it. The world doesn't get it because the world's love is skewed. Even if the world might know that the supreme act of love would be a sacrifice for somebody, yet it cannot know true sacrifice, true love apart from God. 
We, of all people, know it. We know it because we've experienced it. They haven't. So if we have experienced the love of Christ and we have seen his example in demonstrating his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if we have a new relationship where we are no longer slaves who don't know anything, but are friends who are privileged to know the plan of Christ, and if we have been given the power and access to the power to love one another, why don't we? And the answer is simple. Because there are times where our sin gets in the way, where our inclinations to sin hinder us from doing what we should do. Not just loving each other, but anything in the Christian life, really. So what must we do instead? I think it's simple. If we take the four things that Jesus has listed here, the first thing we must do is yield. Yield. Jesus is not giving a divine suggestion. This is my suggestion to you, that you love other people. And yeah, I get it. Sometimes it's hard. That's not what Jesus said. He said, this is my command. Yield to the Lord. But number two, I think that we model it for others. Jesus gave an example for us, and what does he call us to do? To do the exact same thing. How will Benjamin and Daniel know what love looks like if I don't model it? How will your children know what love looks like if you don't model it? How will future generations of Christians know what love looks like if you don't model it? Jesus modeled it for us. We should model it to others. Number three, I think that we should have the same kind of relationship as well. Sometimes we as Christians can have a pecking order. You know, here's the good big Christians, and then there's kind of the rest of us who are down here. Jesus says, you're no longer slaves. Your relationship with me is that of a privileged friend. Why would we have any kind of hierarchy of friendships? Our friendships with other Christians, whether they be in this congregation or whether they be in a congregation halfway around the world, should be the same. They're a sinner redeemed by Jesus, and therefore, if they're Jesus' friend, they're my friend. My love for other people will be easier to express when I see other people in the same way Jesus does. If that person has trusted Christ, they're his friend, that makes them my friend. Of course, there's going to be varying levels of relationships in life. That's just the way life works. But the point is, there should never be anything in the back of our minds that caveats our love. Never. Because Jesus didn't. And I believe, then, number four, that for us to love one another, I think it means that we must embrace. Embrace. If we cannot naturally love one another apart from the work of God, then what must we do? Embrace God. Cling to Him. You have the Holy Spirit residing within you. And so does that other person who has Christ as well. They have God's Holy Spirit. You have God's Holy Spirit. Embrace him. The only way you will find your love, your acts of love in a sacrificial supreme way will manifest itself is when you embrace Christ wholeheartedly, when you yield yourself to the Holy Spirit, and then you turn around and apply the things you know. That's the only way it will happen. So we are commanded by our Lord to love one another. But in my 
my main point, which I'll close with this. I use the word actively love because love is not just a feeling. Love is an action. Love does. If you go to 1 Corinthians 13, you see that love does things. It's a verb. It does things. Our love as Christians for one another as Christians must be active and it should be the model of the same kind of sacrificial love that we were shown by the Lord himself. Let's pray. Lord, we do not deserve your love. By all accounts, we deserve your wrath. But in kindness and mercy, you have saved us. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to your mercy, you saved us. So we thank you for that kind of sacrificial supreme love that acted on our behalf. Father, I pray for any person in this room who does not know and has not experienced the love of Jesus Christ, that they might yield themselves to the call of the gospel, that they wouldn't come to know what is the sweetness and the loveliness of Jesus. And I pray for each believer in this room who has embraced Christ. Lord, you are our Lord. You command us to love one another. But it's not a cold command. It's a command that we wish to follow out of love. Because you modeled it. You've made us your friends. And you're the one who will enable it. So I pray today you would help us to apply this. That we would, without reserve, and in the supreme sacrificial way, Give our love to one another, to the praise of your name. Amen.